listening to Creative and Curious, a weekly podcast made for creative seekers who are compelled to let your inner artist reign free. Here we explore the mystery of how creating makes us better humans and artists. I'm Marika, and welcome to today's Discoveries. special episode. I almost didn't record an episode this week because I wanted to be respectful for voices that I think are more important than mine, my small voice in this world around the racist issues of the United States and the protests that are happening now. I really believe that we white people need to be quiet right now and listen very, very carefully to Black people of America. I would encourage you to educate yourself, to follow organizations like Black Lives Matter, the King Center, even Barack Obama is starting to get his voice in the mix. There's a woman named Rachel Cargill who does some wonderful work aggregating information that you can read and self-educate yourself through. You can follow her on Instagram, And she has a Patreon site as well. So you can support her monetarily and her efforts. If you start there, defendblacklives.org is another one. Freedom Fund. There's so many. You start one place and you're going to find so many other people. It's a huge network of incredibly intelligent Black voices out there fighting for justice. A really good book that I started reading this week is called how to be an anti-racist. And I've done a lot. I've actually read my fair share of books on privilege and race and power in, in the world. I'm not an expert at all. Just because I've read does not mean I'm a, I'm a, I'm an upstanding uh, citizen (laughs) and and does not get rid of my white privilege and, um, and all the mistakes I made within it. But, but this book, I feel like, is a really good, the, the narrative around white supremacy about, around Black communities has changed so much in the last 20 years. And this is a very accessible book, if, as long as you are willing to accept that your whiteness might be getting in the way of thinking clearly. Just try that for a little bit. Just try it. Just try to forget that it's about you being white. Try to remember that it's about other people being black and see where that takes you. But how to be a racist, I'm sorry, how to be an anti-racist is a great book. Um, The next one I want to read is White Fragility. I've read some really amazing other books, but these are the ones that I feel like are, are, they're forefront of my mind and I'll just pass them on to you. If you need some support and to hear white voices in the mix, if that makes you feel better, I have been really moved by the support I've seen by people like Chelsea Chorus, uh, who is an amazing yoga instructor and just athlete in general. Marianne Williamson, who is a spiritual leader. She was also running for president this year. And Elizabeth Gilbert, of course, the famous author of Eat, Pray, Love, and Brene Brown, um, who I think a lot of people know, Brene Brown have all been such wonderful advocates for amplifying the Black voices. And they too are spreading resources so that you can learn more about what it means to be Black in America and what our role as white people in that Black America mean for them. And I'm not saying that you've done anything wrong. Being complicit is a problem. Um, Being ignorant is a problem. Um, It is basically what white systems are built on. So I really believe that a lot of people right now should be self-educating, listening, paying very close attention to what Black voices are saying right now. It's been a long time coming. I mean, a huge, long time coming. That said, I have a podcast 
And that double said, one of my main goals, which has been so hard with this podcast, is being consistent. I am trying really hard to consistently post something every week. And though, and so I struggle with this cause of the consistency is important to me in my mental health, in building a vision for my business in building some muscle around what it takes to try to do something in this creative space, in this creative entrepreneurial space. It's, it's a test of my character to be consistent and I want you to be paying attention to other things this week, but I am still going to post a podcast because God damn it. It's like going to the gym. I've got to do it to build this muscle. The topic that I'm going to talk about is not directly related to creativity, though what I do believe is directly related to creativity is wellness. And I really believe that overall wellness of the individual is what feeds creativity. I am not a proponent. I do not believe in some of this stuff about, you know, you've got to be a crazy, unhappy, depressed artist to create the best work. I, I know that there are some people out there who have been like that almost despite themselves, they have created great work. And of course the term great work is relative anyways. You may not agree with some of it and some of the great work, by the way, like I'm thinking of Van Gogh, like Van Gogh is so interesting because he, he really does go crazy at the end of his life and he cuts off his ear and he does all this crazy stuff. And his work gets so frenetic. And some people would say it is the most interesting work that he's done. It's the most groundbreaking. And yet it's also the craziest work that he's done. And it's, um, it's just a mirror for the inside of him. And I don't really want to go crazy as an artist. I'm really not interested in going crazy. I'm uh, really much more interested in being an artist that has built my creativity on wellness. Um, that's why I go to the gym every day. That's why I eat well. That's why I meditate. I see this all, I see creativity as part of a lifestyle. And I love all art. And, um, and I do believe that most of the wonderful writing, like when I think about this book, um, how to be an anti-racist, it comes from a place of love. This book, it comes from a place of love. There's no other place that a book like this could have been written from self-love for sure. And forgiveness, a lot of self-forgiveness too. So wellness is really important. And I believe, you know, wellness on an individual scale where I'm mostly in charge of my own wellness, I'm part of a community. And there is, and even though that community, that black community, that's part of the community, those global community that we live on is actually quite far away from where I live and have lived in my life. It is still connected to me and it is unwell. It is unhealthy. It is being policed. It is being terrorized. I need to validate that and I need to do what I can to help heal, to help create anti-racist policies and communities. And I'm pretty far away. It feels like a really big thing, but I know most black people would probably roll their eyes at me and say, you know, you have more power than you think you do because you're white. I know that. I totally know that. So I am it, I am responsible for the wellness of the whole community. And especially when we have protests happening daily and violence now happening daily because voices are not being listened to. We all are, we all need to take some responsibility for where we are right now. So what I want to do in this podcast is only share my story and the things that I have learned about Black America, about my whiteness in Black America, with the hopes that maybe some of it might resonate 
some of my might help you understand why some of the things I think are so important is are important with the hopes that if you haven't already turned off this podcast and looked at some of the resources I've provided, you might do that eventually. At least get curious, at least get curious about what is being said outside of our own silo, our own echo chamber that we create. And because I know most of you, I know all of you are well-meaning people who, who believe in love and believe in healthy communities. I also believe and know that this is not about love. This is not about people loving each other. This is not about love and hate actually at all. I mean, I'm sure some people hate, but it's actually more about ignorance and curiosity is the opposite of ignorance. But if you, if you are not asking questions in terms of why this is happening beyond people just love and hate each other, then, then you're not making the right moves. You got to be start asking, what don't you know? What don't you understand? Because if you're white, you probably really don't know what it means to be a black person. And I say that really not knowing what it means to be a black person. And I'm white, man. I'm as white as they get. I, my, I grew up in Seattle, which is a fairly white town. I mean, and North Seattle in particular is even whiter. It's, it's a very clear thing that happens in Seattle where the North, more North of Seattle you get, the whiter it gets, the more South of Seattle you get, the darker it gets. It's as simple as that. It's, and, and in fact, if you go East towards Bellevue and Kirkland, it gets pretty white that way as well. So we've, we have a segregated community in Seattle, which makes a lot of white people feel very comfortable in their whiteness and very comfortable, honestly, in their liberal ideas because we are not living them. We are theorizing about what it means, uh, what equity means, for example. We're not really actually seeing it in action. And I grew up in the late 80s and early 90s at a high school in Shoreline, which is right north of Seattle, unincorporated with like a handful of black people, maybe five uh, in the whole school, the whole school. And I was editor in chief of the yearbook. Uh, there was 1200 of us. There might've been four or five black people in all of that. I mean, if I, if I maybe at any time, maybe, maybe 10, something like this, which is, I mean, what is that? That's not even, that it's not even a percent, you know, it was so low. And there was a good Asian population, but we were really white. We were very, very white. And I think that's really important because that creates an echo chamber that creates this, the, a lot of white people teaching white kids how to be white. And if you happen to be black, you're going to hear the white perspective too. I thought I was really somewhat evolved because I was friends with black people. The, the very few handful of black people that I knew I had in some cases, good relationships and friendship friendships with some of the black people at our school. And thought they were really friendly and fun and nice. And yeah, it would, that was part of my life was kind of getting to know the black people. So I thought it was pretty, I, I had it together. I was, I didn't have any hate in me because I could actually talk to a black person and maybe not even see the color of their skin. You know, I grew up with the regular history class, regular history curriculum of a high school student. I had a U.S. history teacher that I believe I was a sophomore that I I really disliked and I really, really disliked him because he wasted class time. He talked, he said really ugly things about his wife. And we as students had learned that we could distract him from the content of the class by getting him to talk about current events and getting him to say rude things about his wife. I'm actually a pretty good student. I was a pretty good student, but I lost it on this, um, this teacher and I called him an asshole in class when he was talking about his wife and we never got through the, and I, and he didn't punish me except I didn't get a great grade either. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to come back to this because I think U S history is a really, really important part of this. And the fact that my history class was such an abuse, abusive environment is part of the story of how I learned about race uh, because I didn't learn anything about race in my U S history class because he was so easy to distract 
And we didn't, we weren't really listening to him, but we were more concerned with how uh, our power over him to, to keep him from doing his job. He was like a football coach too. He was just totally not there to teach history. I feel like that was such a waste and such a lost opportunity on everybody in that class. So that was my U.S. history. We barely made it to civil rights. And of course, you know, most of the time, civil rights is Martin Luther King's a God, youth peaceful protests. We learned everything we needed to learn in our civil rights movement of the, of the 60s. And now we're fully evolved. There is no race. We're all colorblind. That's pretty much what I thought the world was when I graduated from high school and I thought the world like that. And I'm saying this too. I, I thought that about the world. I didn't even know I thought about that, thought that about the world, right? Like it was so inbred. It was so baked into who I was that it was so systemic and so structural, structurally real around me that I never questioned it. It was just, we're colorblind. We've figured all the race, the race stuff out. And Martin Luther King saved everybody. Uh, and we never got past, past that. Then I got into college. I'm going to skip a lot of my, my college life because it was checkered and I was an unhappy college student. But um, my last quarters in my senior year at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I decided, and I was really attracted to literature at the time, they would call it minority literature. I don't know. I should know, but I don't know what they call it now. Um, but I, I studied literature, uh, Native American literature. I studied Asian. I don't even think it was Asian American. I know Japanese literature and uh, French literature. I was really interested in other perspectives aside from American perspectives, as well as global and people of color in the United States at the time. And so I, I, I studied a lot of that. And at the end, my very last couple quarters, I ended up in a couple of classes. One was the literature, the women's literature of the black power movement. My final class was literature of the black power movement. The thing you have to know about the black power movement is <laughs> it came after the civil rights movement. It came after Martin Luther King. Uh, so what I jumped into when I took that class was a time frame and a time that I knew nothing about. I knew, I knew nothing. Nope. I mean, I don't, I don't even think if that history professor had moved us through the civil rights movement, I, I don't know that black, the black Panthers or Malcolm X would have even been mentioned in those books because they were considered, they are, considered so radical. I think they're still considered radical. I'm actually not really sure how people, I don't know. You know, I learned about how I read some wonderful, beautiful literature. I read Angela Davis, uh, James Baldwin, Nikki Giovanni, more. I can't remember all of them. It was 20 years ago. It very heartfelt, passionate writing. But what really stunned me was learning the backdrop of history that these, this, literature was coming out of, which was, which was that fundamentally that the reason the protests, the black power Panther movement and the black power movement ended in decline was in large part because the CIA was infiltrating protests, infiltrating meetings and undermining whatever in whatever way they could. And also that the other piece of demise of the Black Panther movement was the introduction of heroin into Black communities. So they undermined them politically and they drugged them up and got them addicted. I was appalled. I had no idea. I had, I had no idea that this was in this class treated as fact. And since then now fact, I, it does not live in my head as a conspiracy theory. I could not believe that no one ever told me that I lived in a country whose government would treat other people this way, who would deliberately undermine 
their rights to a healthy and just community to be treated fairly and equally because of the color of their skin. The history of racism tells it all. It's not, (laughs) it's once you, if you start to dive into it and you go all the way back to slavery and you start to sort of trace you know, which the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, does a beautiful job of. There's lots of books out there that will help you kind of see the history of racism and unfold how that works. It doesn't, it's not a surprise. It's totally not a surprise. But to me, at 22, it was a complete and total shock. It was one of those moments where the world that I thought I lived in was not the world that I, that I thought I lived in. And what was crazy I was reeling from learning all this and I was talking to my mom on the phone about it and how, how outrageous it seemed. And I'm processing and I'm like, and mom, did you know that the CIA infiltrated these black power movements? And my mom says, yeah, I knew that. And she said, in fact, I dated a CIA agent who was infiltrating the black power movement. I didn't know it at the time, she said, but she knew it after he was made. Somebody found him out and he disappeared. And she found some evidence that he was an agent after he left. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, like I then. So I'm wrestling with this U.S. history teacher who was so derelict in his duty to teach us about the real history of the United States. Right. And then what I hear from my mom and she knew she completely knew that this was an element of the history of the United States, that the, that our own government would go in and infiltrate these, these movements just to protect themselves, just to keep their communities safe. She never told me. She, my mother, I love her, did not think for a moment that this was something to teach a child about or even a high schooler about, whatever age you think is the most appropriate age to be talking about these things. Never, never. My parents never talked to me about racism, true racism, like racism as it exists. To me, it was a fairy tale. To me, it was something that was gone because they allowed the, the school system to teach me something that wasn't real. And they didn't take responsibility for it. And we were middle-class white people. They didn't have to. And that is a function of white supremacy, honestly. I mean, it's a function of the fact that we uh, were white enough that it didn't matter. It doesn't matter to our benefit or detriment whether or not we face the, the truth of racism. The system has worked to uphold us so well and to support us so well that we need, we need to choose what we learn and who we teach and what we teach. It's not towards a value. It's not towards the value of truth or justice towards equity. We just get to choose. And unfortunately, I think it's just sort of human nature to want to explain away the injustice, how it's not fair in, in whatever, in whatever ways. I mean, racism is a really great example of that, but but we do it a lot. When we do something we might be ashamed of, we explain it away. We hide it. We deny, we deny, we deny, we deny. It's not like denial only exists in, you know, racial and racist comments and ideas. It Denial exists in everyday life, really. So, yeah. So I, so then I had to struggle, not just with an education system that failed me, but the fact that my parents just didn't even think it was important enough to share with me. And I would say still don't, I think they, I think my mother still thinks the, the, I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't really know what she thinks because I've had some conversations with her recently and it's, it's almost like she's just completely comfortable with the conflict. So, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the conflict at all. So that was my first foray into starting to understand how racism exists in the world. It shaped how I then proceeded for sure. It shaped the way that I saw the system. Uh, I'm still white. I still have a lot of privilege. I still get to choose whether I engage in this very complex topic or not, I can put it away whenever I want to. And I want to 
absolutely acknowledge that I am not living a black life. I'm, I'm very concerned for black lives, but I don't have to, I don't have to put my life on the line for it either. And that I have my own issues, but it's totally not about how I feel about that. And again, I continue to live a very white life. I mean, I, um, I have done, I've entered education because education can make a difference. It's not the only thing that makes a difference in the world, but it can make a difference. I had a lot of wonderlust after I graduated and I um, taught in Nicaragua. I taught English in Nicaragua. I taught ESL in uh, Seattle as well. Taught a wide variety of people and I have a master's degree in, in adult education, training and development, which included, you know, the multicultural education compulsory class that everybody has to take so that we make sure we don't have any people who are too racist in their teaching and stuff. And in those classes, again, I was reading books on power and privilege and getting all worked up about it as is the way. And then I got a job at Bellevue College and at the college, the college that I taught at had a lot of it back to this idea of Seattle. You go north, it gets more white. And you go east, it gets more white. It, where I taught was in east, east, east of Seattle in Bellevue, Redmond. It's where Microsoft is, and generally considered very white, especially when I first started there. And there was a lot of racial tension. There has been a lot of racial tension at Bellevue College. I don't know about other colleges, but there was a lot of things that happened on that campus that that weren't around blacks disrupting anything. It was about, I mean, there were some white supremacists sometimes, you know, and, um, disrupting the college. And there was a very vocal um, group of faculty who believed really, really strongly in, um, in, they called it pluralism at the time. The, The words always change. So it's confusing me what words I'm supposed to be using (laughs) because it was multiculturalism and then it was pluralism and then equity. There were very intense discussions happening on campus around issues around race and identity a a lot, a lot that I was very happy to engage in from the outskirts of it because in some ways it was so, it was kind of like, it was so explosive that it felt dangerous too. And, and this is because I walked in on the history of this college that doesn't seem to understand how to, how to manage the discussion around race. It's crazy. That's crazy too. And, and, uh, but it was educational too. It, I, I was listening. I was definitely listening and I was definitely trying to do what I could in the classes to, make my classes feel equitable, which included things like allowing students to decide what content they wanted to apply, what they were learning to. Um, I didn't do a lot of tests because tests can be biased. And when I did, I often gave, you know, pre-tests so people could practice. So they knew exactly what to, what I was going to ask on the tests. It's, it's learning. I was way more focused on learning than trying to prove who was smarter than who, whoever else. I believe that's the function of education. The function of education is to teach. It's to help people learn. It's not to try to make some students rise above the others. And so if I had a class full of students who could get A's then and learn and actually would say that they learned something, then I believed that uh, that, that was an equitable class. And that was kind of how I handled that. Uh I remember one student who he came about at about halfway through my career at Bellevue college and he was black and he had a hard time making it to class on time or ever. He was really nice and very interested and engaged in the contents of the class. When he was there, he really struggled with my assignments because I had essays that you had to write. And I tried to help him. We, I met with him a few times during my office hours, or sometimes I would schedule an, uh, an hour for him and we would go over his paper and I would try to help him. He, his writing skills were terrible. 
And he was always grateful. He was always gracious. He was always very nice to me. Come around to the last essay. Can't remember exactly what happened. Either he didn't turn it in. I think he might not have turned it in. And he tried to turn it in while I was on vacation. I remember we were in Mexico or something like that. I made an exception from giving him an F in the class because his, none of his work, most of his work was not turned in, if I remember correctly. But he really wanted to turn in this assignment last and uh, made an exception. And I graded it and it was really not good. I remember it was really not good, but I decided to give him a D instead because he was trying. Didn't think much of it otherwise. He was also a DRC student, which is a disability resource center. He had some kind of disability, I think, when I think about it. But I didn't know anything about disabilities. And the way that it worked was the student would go to the DRC. The DRC would assess them for their disabilities. And then the, the student would come to the teacher with a yellow sheet. I think it was yellow. And it would say what accommodations we were supposed to make for that student. We didn't know what the disability was. We were never, ever told what the disability was, which was sometimes an issue because sometimes the student assumed that we knew. And but it's actually illegal for us to know anything. We can't even ask. The student has to tell us if um, if they want us to know. I learned the hard way to make sure that students knew that. And um, I think this was one of the hard ways. So his, I'm sure his said something like he needed extended time testing and I uh, didn't do tests. So I was like, okay, no tests. We're just doing these essays. That's a piece of it. Maybe sometime into the next quarter, it must've been, I learned that he filed a complaint against me and he was charging that I was biased and that I gave him a low grade because he was black. I was totally offended. I will not lie. And I knew I had done nothing wrong. I felt like if I was being compassionate and what I had learned from him about him was that he was on financial aid. He's a DRC student. If he fails his classes, he doesn't get his financial aid. He has no access to education. He was an older guy, um, probably on unemployment. If he didn't get educated, he couldn't find a new job, all that stuff. It wasn't really about me, but he was accusing me of racism. And I felt horrible. The whole thing was horrible. The way that it went down eventually was I had to go to court. It was, <laughs> it's not court court. It's a, it's the college's court. I had to go to the college's court. I don't know. I don't remember what it was called, but I remember thinking this is court because it was me and this student was there and there was a panel of people and we had to, we had to um, defend ourselves. We had to, you know, say, what we had done and, and where we had gone with it. I'm sure somewhere in that process, I had already written it down for that panel anyways. And I sat there while um, I listened. I'm sure I'd given him my syllabus. I'm sure I'd given him all the papers and all that stuff. And I probably said something. I don't remember what I said, but I did sit there and listen while he said that he believed the reason why he failed my class there was another teacher too that he was finally to get was because we were racist. And then he looked at me and he said, well, Marika was always really nice and she really did try to help me, but, but, she, but it's just all racist. And, <laughs> and I, <laughs> and that was true. I was, I was really trying to help him and I felt so betrayed by him. And then so stunned that he was also saying I was racist and it was racist. And, and what I know now, like when I look back on that, I mean, I knew at, in a certain degree that it wasn't really about me, but it was also heartbreaking because it's not why I'm there. I'm not there to, I was not there to be accused of racism, to be taken to court, to be pushed through the system so that he could maintain his financial aid. 
he had very little other choice in the matter. He was a black man trying to move his way through the system. I now know part of this long story is I now know that my son is dyslexic and I knew nothing about dyslexia back then. Nothing. And believe me, like learning that your son is dyslexic. I am now, I know a lot about dyslexia now. I mean, if you have any questions about dyslexia, I can probably answer them. That's not what I want to do, but, um, (laughs) for my living and I've tutored dyslexic kids. I tutored my, my son. That's, that's a whole nother story. But now I look back at what I was up against in those office hours with him. And I know for a fact that he was dyslexic. I don't know what that DRC form meant. And I don't know if he actually had a diagnosis of dyslexia, but he could not write. He, it was hard for him to write a paragraph. He didn't have college level writing skills. And that is not usually a sign of intelligence. He seemed like a very smart a well-aware man, he was dyslexic on top of it. And I can tell you this other thing about it. Oftentimes our kids, I was so lucky that my son was recognized as dyslexic in kindergarten. And it's not, it is not normal to, to find out that somebody is uh, dyslexic in kindergarten. I tested him through the Seattle public schools for advanced placement and he tested in and his kindergarten teacher said, no way that's not happening in class. And then it became clear that reading was just not happening at all in kindergarten. And yet here I had this test showing that he was smart. He wasn't stupid. He was intelligent enough to be the 98th percentile. And that's a sign of dyslexia, by the way, if you're, if you're wondering, oftentimes what happens when kids are dyslexic is they, they're not dumb. They recognize that they are not learning like the other kids in class, but they are kids and they do not know how to self-advocate. They do not know that they should be saying, I don't understand what's going on. You're telling me I should be reading this and this doesn't make any sense to me. They have no, they're five, right? They have no idea. So boys tend to act out. And my son in, in kindergarten was, just not looking at the books. He was spacing out. He was, it didn't make any sense for him to have quiet reading time because in none of it, he couldn't read it. He didn't, it didn't make any sense. Girls will pretend that they're reading because they understand structurally what's supposed to be happening in the community. Um, So they want to fit in and they don't want to cause trouble. So they just kind of pretend that they know what's going on. And both of them, the boys and the girls, all develop skills for pretending that they know what's up. If it's acting out, they'll act like they kind of know something, but then they divert with the acting out behavior. Uh, The girls just pay attention to cues. And um, usually they slowly are slipping behind. And it's not until second or third grade, maybe, maybe, and sometimes tragically later, that maybe people start to recognize there might be a learning issue. And you throw race in there and those boys, those white boys that are acting out have a whole white community around them of teachers and parents who have resources that to try to help and diagnose and figure out, is it dyslexia? Is it ADD? Is it what's going on? But usually what happens to these black kids is when they have learning disability, it's not a disability, at learning differences, they are labeled as troublemakers and dumb. And I mean, it happens to the white kids too, if, if they don't have a uh, and somewhat curious community around them. But if you're black, probably going to be told that you're just stupid and you're trouble. And you're going to believe it if you're black, because everything around you is pointing to the fact that you can't learn how to read and you must be an idiot. And that's what I imagine looking back at this man who was in my office, obviously could not write. It was very difficult. He's very passionate, very nice man, but with no writing skills, a DRC letter, and he's being thrown into college uh, without, without even faculty like me, even understanding what, what's going on with him. He's just fighting back. He's just fighting back in whatever way he can. And, and in the process, alienating people who were trying to help him because I wasn't part of that system that he could, he could get 
he needed to throw me under the bus so he could maintain his financial aid. Right. And people knew that I'm, I'm not, people knew that they, there were people who compassionately understood that about the situation. It was a really good example of how the system works against race too. how by the time he got into my class, the guy was ruined even before he could start. I, uh, did not survive that very well. Personally, I will say it was one of the the top three things that probably pushed me out of the college eventually. Not the worst. Absolutely not the worst at all by far. But I still really strongly believe in justice. And I, I don't think it's right for people to be treated differently because of their race. I think it sucks that black children are being labeled stupid and, and troublemakers instead of having curious administrators and teachers trying to figure out what's going on with them in a learning difference sort of circumstance. And, you know, my son also goes to a a school for dyslexic learners, which is great. It's wonderful for him. He's getting the education he needs. And guess what? The reason why for that is because he's white and he's privileged and he comes from a middle-class family who, and a mother who's in education, who has done the homework, who has, understands what's going on and who has the luxury and privilege of being able to do that homework to figure out how to help my son. And there are pitiful amount of people of color, kids of color at this school. Pitiful. It's not a white, it's not a white person's thing. This is, uh, dyslexia is across the board Depending on, some people say up to 20% of the population is dyslexic and it's on a continuum. It's either really dyslexic or a little dyslexic. So in theory, 20% of the population of this school should be, um, well, no, that's not, that's not right. If there's 13% of the population is black, then 13% of the school should be black or, and whatever it is in Seattle or, you know, how you break it down. It should be proportionate. It's definitely not proportionate. It's like, it's, it's so white. (laughs) This school is so white, which reflects the privilege, the privilege of being able, being dyslexic and being able to go to a school that actually addresses your learning needs. And of course that just, you just trace those back to being white. That's the way it is. I think the school kind of knows that I've seen some things at the school that make me think, oh, my God, you guys need to do some work. But uh, this is super problematic, super problematic. And yet I'm going to keep my child there. Well, he's decided to move on, but I definitely, uh, of course, put him in that school because it was the immediate, the, the most important thing for him to be exposed to at this time in his life is the proper teaching skills for his ability to learn language skills like reading and writing. I have also worked in, um, in my final sort of role at the college, I was in charge of professional development and part of an arm of that role was training the equity training. At that time, I think we started calling it equity training. And so we had, there were sort of these big buckets that we were going after, which was the equity, the sustainability, and the technology. Like those were kind of the three. And then there was the teaching skills and it all embedded in all of that and sort of separately, but there was these three kind of big pieces. And I was in charge of uh, the strategic planning around how to help faculty learn how to make their classrooms more equitable through their teaching and all that stuff. So I helped um, people Uh, with their programming, mostly in a leadership role, not in a design role. I'm not an expert again in this at all. I just want to empower justice on the planet and at the school. It got very political. I I know I've said this a lot about this, but it got very political. It got very political because it was about race. And I worked with the VP of equity and pluralism. I worked with faculty of color worked through a lot of resistance and guilt and shame just in order to provide training for new faculty to the college, to, to provide a narrative, a story for a new faculty to help them understand how to create an equitable classroom. Because if you're white, you don't see anything wrong with the system. The system works really, really well for you. If you were white, it's really difficult to let go of your whiteness and try to see past your own race. 
And there's a lot of white shame and guilt and a lot of feeling, a lot of white feeling. Boy, I have the feelings too. I feel horrible. I mean, I left that college and I've done, I've not been an ally. I've been playing. I've been an artist. I've been traveling. I've been having fun. I've been on vacation from all this stuff. So I'm not saying that I'm perfect at all. I know that I'm, I'm having my own conversation with myself about this, but it doesn't matter what I feel. It, it, it so doesn't matter what I feel in this discussion at all, because it's nothing compared to living in a black community in which you cannot even get in your car and drive down the street without being afraid that a white cop might pull you over. And if they do pull you over, you have to be very, very careful how you move and what you say for fear that that police officer will overreact because of your, this color of your skin, not because you've been doing anything wrong, but because you are a black person in that car and what that must be feel like on a regular basis to feel like you, the police are always watching you and you're not doing anything. You're just, you're just black. That's doesn't exist in my community. I barely see a white, I, I barely, I see white people all the time. I barely see, I barely see police officers in my community. And when I do, it's sort of eyebrow raising, like what, what's a white, what's a, what's a police officer doing here? You know, that's how white I am. That's how privileged I am. We don't, I mean, and honestly, my husband laughs at me because we don't see black people here either. And, um, and uh, when we do, I'm usually like, Hey, look, there's a black person. And I'm not, I'm not afraid or anything, but I'm a little like, wow, what's it like to be a black person in a community like this? That is so white. And is it feel safe? I mean, I can't, does it can't possibly be, what are you doing here? And like, it's, I mean, that's my world that is, and that's the world that I've created. And I have all these white reasons for it. And I am grateful. I'm going to say I'm so incredibly grateful for the black people I have known in my life. I'm grateful for those black people that I worked with at the college who educated me through creating these programs, who took leadership. I'm also incredibly grateful for what I learned about how complicated it is too, that it is not that easy. This is a journey. It is not a destination. And that racism is trauma. Like the damage that is done by the racism, uh, the, the racial, the racism, it's not hate either by the policies and the structures and the institutions that uphold white power and, and, and keep black power down. Like this has created trauma. This has created in people real, real trauma. And so it is, it's not even, it's not even an issue of, it's not even an issue of removing the barriers and just saying, be free because you remove the barriers and there's still the trauma. There's still the hurt and there's still the pain. Right. And it's not, it's, it's so beyond, it's so beyond it. That was something I learned the hard way at the college was removing barriers is not my only job that there would still be pain because there had been so much, there had been so much pain caused and so much trauma. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I had a friend once say to me, I don't know any black people. This was after when I got back from Costa Rica a few years ago and the black power movement was making a resurgence. And she just turned to me and said, I don't know any black people. Do you know black people? And I was shocked that she didn't know any black people. So I'm actually even grateful that I know black people because they're real people to me. I know real black people and they have taught me, they have taught me and, um, and I love them. I love them. I cannot, I mean, I love people. But some of the black women I have known in my life have been some of the best teachers in my life, too. That's part of all this as well. And that, I guess, is what I have to say now about this topic of my history of being white and bumping up against this time. I know 
that I need to continue to act, continue to learn. I've somewhat awoken again. I'm coming out of my vacation and I'm not perfect, but I'm doing what I can. We'll continue to do it. And it starts with learning. You don't have to do anything, but if you feel like you need to do something, you can. I mean, like act, like actual act into the world, do something. Learning is a really good first step. It can be transformational. Taking a look at the resources out there. There are endless resources. Go and self-study. Go and find out. Don't put it on the Black people that you know to teach you. Teach yourself. They put it out there. They've been putting it out there. There are wonderful books. They've been putting out this message for a long time. And uh, I hope, I hope this was helpful. Thank you for spending this time with me and for spreading the word about creative and curious. You can find me here every Thursday with new thoughts and insights on creativity, curiosity, and life. Tell me what you think. Please email me your comments and questions at marika at marikarenke.com. And if you feel inclined, leave a review. They really do mean the world to me and they'll help this podcast reach people just like you. And the best thing that you can do Keep creating. Thanks again.